0: Father, this morning we do uh, want to lift up even the silent prayers, the unspoken ones that everyone has, issues that all of us uh, face day by day and living in a fallen and lost world. Yeah, you know the needs that all of us have. We don't even know all that we need, but uh, you do. We praise you for that. We also pray and lift up as Katie prayed for our nation and all the things that are going on and the destructiveness, destructive forces, evil things. We would desire that you would uh, continue to work in our nation as you have in past time, in the turmoil that you might uh, awaken people and you might bring them to yourself, that they might realize why we are having problems and that they might turn to you and seek individually their salvation relationship if they're out of fellowship, and strength if they are walking with you. So we just uh, desire that today, as we look into your word, that it would strengthen us, give us a different perspective on not only the world, but things around us, and that uh, your word would uh, come alive to us, that it in fact, knew our hearts, motivate us to be the people you want us to be in the culture we live in. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the miracles, I don't think a lot of people recognize it, one of the miracles of our day that we are seeing unfold right before our eyes, if you know anything about Bible prophecy, you know that at the heart of Bible prophecy is the nation of Israel. In fact, I just completed a course on eschatology, and throughout the course I kept emphasizing because it comes up over and over The idea that eschatology is Jewish, just as world history is Jewish, eschatology is Jewish. And we won't get to a passage, but I'm reminded of it because it's right about where we're going to end today. That basically is talking about the nation of Israel in the future from the time that it was written. In fact, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy And also in the book of Leviticus, lays out all of Israel's future before they're even a nation. And one of the passages that deals with the far future is Deuteronomy 30, which part of that is quoted. We won't probably get that far today, but Israel and the fact that there's a nation in the land today should uh, give believers hope. That not only that God fulfills what he says he's going to do, but hope that his coming may be soon be taken out of the circumstance we find ourselves in. So with that introduction, the passage we're dealing with deals with Israel, and particularly Israel's failure, and it explains to us why Israel right now, even though world history is Jewish, and even though eschatology is Jewish, why Israel is not at the focus and the center of what God is doing. You know, we don't think about it. We're part of the church. We think that's kind of the end all. That's the main thing. And certainly that's what God is doing in the world today. But from our limited perspective of one small, tiny lifetime, it seems like that's all that there is. In reality, Israel is at the heart of what God is doing, so it's normal that when Paul writes to the church at Rome or the many small churches in the city of Rome, he's addressing this issue with the nation of Israel because of not only the prominence and the importance in the first century, but the importance in essentially every age. Even though Israel is set aside now, God will in fact uh, deal with them even after the church age. And if you know eschatology, the church age will end with the rapture and then God will return dealing with the nation of Israel, fulfill everything that is promised, fulfill all the covenants. And in fact, chapter 11, book of Romans tells us that all of Israel will be saved. Talk some more about that one at that point. So just a few sites of ancient Rome dating back to the 1st century and before to remind us of the context that uh, this book was written to real people that lived in a real place in a real time with situations probably in general not so different than uh, each and every one of us today 2000 years later so we're in the book of Romans where the Biggest division of the book is God providing his righteousness. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as the passage is focused on the righteousness of God. Now, he's speaking in terms of people becoming believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of the body of Christ. But in the first century, you could uh, probably legitimately ask the question, Side by side, if Israel is the focus of God's dealings, and now, Paul, you're talking about this provision of God's righteousness that is going out to Gentiles, and it looks like more Gentiles are responding, and very few Jewish people are responding. What's going on? So that leads Paul, through the Holy Spirit, to include a vindication, another division in the book of Romans 9 through 11, a vindication of God's righteousness, in that God is righteous in setting aside Israel, and the whole concept, God, his plan, is vindicated. So, that has three parts. We've already completed the first part, where God has sovereignly chosen Israel. Now, I changed slightly the wording there, because someone called me that the way I had It was not as clear as Israel chosen, rather than Israel Israel's choice. God choosing Israel, so God reviews their history, and throughout their history, God has been selective, even within Israel, even within the ethnic, national Israel, God has always been selective, so it's not unusual that uh, God would be selective in terms of a different time frame, a different era. And that introduces the idea of the Gentiles. And that was in that passage. And so that leads to why God has set aside Israel and is now giving attention to Gentiles. So Israel is under discipline. That's the section we're in now. We're in chapter 10. We'll expand upon that. And when we complete 10, we'll get to chapter 11. God still has a plan for Israel. In fact, like I said... The Old Testament anticipates much of what Paul is going to describe in chapter 11. All of the things that have not yet been fulfilled, all of the things that are prophetic from the Old Testament perspective and even the New Testament perspective, they will come together. And Paul gives us a little bit of insight into the future restoration of the nation of Israel. So Israel in the land today, since 1948, should uh, alert us to many, many passages in the Old Testament that speak speak of this restoration, particularly Romans chapter 11, should call us to take heed concerning what God is going to do shortly after the period of time, or the time that we call the church age. So the main issues in uh, chapters 9 through 11, Israel as God's chosen people, has God abandoned them totally? Has God reneged on his promises to those chosen people? And obviously, the emphatic answer, both of those is no, and this section tries to answer that. And the issue, again, of only a few within Israel. Does that mean that the gospel message that Paul proclaimed in Romans 1 through 8, is this an illegitimate gospel? It, It is not a gospel at all. Is it a cult that Paul is trying to start that goes against what God has promised concerning his chosen people. If so few Israelites, so few Jewish people are responding to it, maybe there's a problem with gospel. That's part of what Paul is dealing with here. So he's going to focus a little bit on the gospel in chapter 10 and expand it and explain that that gospel, the Jewish people, and he's going to explain from the Old Testament, the the Old Testament, broadens the outreach of God to Gentiles as well, and that's what is happening. So Gentiles coming to God, and what about the law in relationship to Gentiles? Well, that's going to be dealt with as well. touched on in the passage today as well. And uh, one of the underlying themes of chapters 9 and on, actually to the end of chapter 10, but we looked at specifically human responsibility, the focus. The first part of chapter 9 is God's sovereignty. Same chart except in outline form. He dealt with the past sovereign election of Israel. First part of chapter 9, verse 29. We're in the present national rejection of Israel. It's a temporary rejection. It's 930 through 10, 21. We started this, this subsection that I've described as the perversion amongst the nation, their perverted pursuit of righteousness, and as a result, they are not attaining that righteousness. The Chapter 9, 30-33, their pursuit and their stumbling. They stumbled over the stumbling block. That's a messianic passage. They stumbled over the Messiah, is essentially what Paul is saying. And uh, the Messiah made a provision such that there is hope for those that trust him. And then last week we started chapter 10, 1 through 4. We didn't quite complete it, so we'll pick up there and we can get into verse 5 and beyond. So there's a problem in Israel. The reason they didn't attain this righteousness, in fact, there's a series of problems that we'll explore. I've got some of them listed on your outline sheet and printed it out. I've uh, got an outline. I usually have an outline within an outline. The main outline is what I'm showing you on the screen. Technically, you could call it an exegetical outline. In other words, an outline that reflects the, the thinking and the thought process of uh, the author, in this case, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that's the exegetical outline. And then within it, I have another or not Usually, sometimes I'll have another outline in italics, all bold letters, depending on the passage, what I insert there. Uh, in this case, the, the failure of the nation of Israel or the problems, first one is in perceiving God's righteousness. Paul begins with a prayer for Israel. Remember, he's Jewish and he prays for his fellow Jews, his brethren in Judaism, and it's a heartfelt prayer. We spend a lot of time on it. Brethren, my heart's desire, and that's a heartfelt desire, strong desire, and is followed up by prayer. It's not indifference. It's a prayer that Paul anticipates to be answered because there will be more Jews that will, in fact, respond to the gospel, and there'll be an answer to that ultimate prayer. We looked at that, that Chapter 11 will detail. He's praying to God for them, and the the essence of that prayer is for their salvation. Now, we touched on that last time, and I'm going to expand on it later. But uh, when you see salvation in the book of Romans, it is not equivalent. It may include, but it's not equivalent with justification. That's the word that Paul focuses on in chapters 1 through 8. And it's going to come into play in this passage as well. But the the word, and I'm going to review that word, justification, that's the word that Paul uses in terms of entering into a right relationship with God. I'm going to expand But when you see the word salvation, don't automatically, as we tend to, because we are so familiar with this word and it's used in this this way so often we need to realize when you see that word, you need to look carefully at the context. The context here, Romans 9 through 11, dealing with the nation of Israel. Paul, I think, in this specific context is using that word in its broadest sense to include even a physical or temporal salvation. It may include obviously that initial trust in Jesus Christ that we're very familiar with, but there's other aspects of that as well that I think we brought out. We'll talk some. Just a reminder and uh, review. So verses two and three. One of the problems that Israel had is they didn't understand one of the perfections of God. In fact, they didn't God Himself. And since this book deals with righteousness. That's the focus of the passage three. So one of the perfections of God unknown. And uh, so we look at verse two, for I testify, continuing his heartfelt desire. I testify, in other words, as an eyewitness Remember, Paul is Jewish, and he remembers his own zealousness. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. And Jewish people in the first century, in fact, throughout their history, have been very zealous. Many of them. Jesus dealt with some of the most zealous of Jewish people in uh, the life of Christ in the gospel. I see a lot of examples of that. I give of them. Paul himself, the prime example, he was so zealous for God that he killed. Christians converted, but he says that that uh, zealousness is not in accordance with knowledge. That's about where we left off. And actually, we end verse three for not knowing about God's righteousness. And that's where I'd like to pick up and expand upon this idea of God's righteousness. What does that mean? And what is Paul communicating here for not knowing about God's righteousness. I want to focus on that because I think this is at the heart of pretty much everything else that's going to follow in chapter 10. Everything begins with what is our understanding? What is our view of God? In fact, one of the things that I emphasize in some of the things that I teach is a worldview and developing a biblical worldview. And one of the reasons we take pains and time to look into the details of what God has revealed, his word. Sometimes we spend a whole session on just one word because that contributes to our biblical worldview that we continually are trying to develop and learn, understand things from God's perspective. And everything stems from a biblical or from a a worldview, and I'm talking about people in general, and for the believer, it begins with a view of God. have stressed several times, man in himself. And the Jews in this context are a perfect example of it. Even exposed to God's word, still missed something of who God is. And they didn't know about the righteousness of God. And in fact, the tendency that Paul is bringing out here. Is a tendency that is broad-based, a tendency that all of us battle and struggle with that we are Jewish Gentile. And it begins with an understanding of God. So not knowing about God's righteousness. So let's talk a little bit about God's righteousness. And let me remind you, remember last time I asked you the question, the word here, dikayasune, it's kind of stressed in this passage and, uh, in Verses 9 through chapter 10, verse 10, we have the word 11 times, and it's kind of striking. He's kind of reminding us, this is a major theme throughout the book of Romans, but he hasn't talked about it much up until this point. And it's a main theme, certainly, of chapters 1 through 8, the idea of concept of righteousness. Now, the word is used, and we did an extensive word study, I don't know, years ago, long ago, in early parts of the Book of Romans and stressing it out, Many of the usages, both in the New Testament and the corresponding Hebrew word, refers to a perfection of God. Now, I prefer the word perfection as opposed to attributes, because all of God's attributes are perfect. So it's a better de- description of God when we give his attributes, refer to them as perfection. Because that distinguishes them from those attributes that God has communicated. We call those communicable attributes that He has communicated to us being created in His image. We have attributes that reflect the image of God, but in God they are perfect perfection. So, dikayasune is commonly in the New Testament, and the corresponding Hebrew word is used in reference to God, and I think that's Paul begins righteousness of God. This is the heart. This is the essence, you might even say. This is the beginning of uh, the problem that Israel had, not only in the first century, but through much of its Testament history. So, this word And I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through these. We went through all of these words. I just want you to recognize and just to remind you of this word group, dikaias, the noun form righteous, or it sometimes is translated just. And the English translators, sometimes you're trying to find a corresponding word that fits and to be able to come up with a good word, sometimes it has to use different words, but these words reflect a word group. And let me go through the word group. There's dikayasune, the one that is here in this context, righteousness, a state or a condition. Then there's a verb form, very common, dikayao. And this is the one that sometimes we, we miss, that it's part of this word group, but it has the same idea. And if you wanted to kind of Translate it literally, you'd have to say something like to declare righteous. That's how that word is used in chapters 1 through 8. Not to become righteous, it could be used in that way, but in in the context when we talk about justification or to justify, that's the word, and that's the word that Paul uses, to justify, or the word that's translated that Paul uses, it's dikaiao, the verb form of dikaios. same word group, same idea, same meaning. It's related to righteous. Remember all this? And to declare righteous, that's how you enter into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We commonly refer to that as salvation. So is all this coming back, those of you that have been with us? So in Romans, when you see the word justification or you just see the verb form to justify, it's this same word group, dikai and what it means to declare righteous. So the moment we trust in Jesus Christ, from God's perspective, he declares us righteous. We don't become righteous. That's a process. That's sanctification. That's growing. That's the Christian life growing to reflect more and more the image of Christ, reflect more and more Christ-likeness. That's a growth process that none of us will complete until the process is completed by God himself. That's another stage. Look at that in Romans 8. But dikaio, declare us righteous, so God views us As if we were as righteous as Jesus Christ, because sin is removed. So to justify or justification, removal of sin. Remember, Linda, that's the negative, our mathematician. But there's also a positive. There's an addition. And that addition is the state of righteousness, or might say uh, positional righteousness. God declares us to be righteous, and he, from that perspective, that's justification. And then you also have another word, justification, and notice it's same, same word, group. So, group, another noun, I'm just doing this to remind you, and so, again, more review, the usage, the nouns in the word group can refer to to God himself as God's perfection. An example, five. another example would be the passage we're looking at. In uh, verse 3, other passages speak of Jesus is righteous because he is God himself. A clear passage in Peter one, The law is righteous in the book of Romans. So the problem in Romans 7 is not with the law. The, the problem is in the sin nature. And also in 5, the law is righteous. What about man? 3.10 says that man is unrighteous. He doesn't have righteousness. He doesn't have a right standing with God. In fact, he is what we might describe condemned, utterly sinful. Use the word depravity sometimes. Another passage you could look up is Galatians 2.21, talking about man. So we are utterly helpless when it comes to a right standing. That's why Jesus Christ is not only the only way, but the 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 means by which we are declared righteous. So just a review of that word study and theologically the central Romans passage, how we enter into that relationship, Romans 3, 21 through 26. I think we spent five or six weeks on that passage. So it can be used in reference to God. It can be used in reference to man in a right standing before God. And in that central theological passage, it talks about Christ's righteousness being imputed. That's an accounting term, a banking term. And by the way, the justification and all of those terms are legal terms. Remember we stressed all of the legal aspects and you how God uses legal analogies in much of the book of Romans. Here is an accounting term to impute, to put to our accounts. In other words, to make a deposit, a spirit, spiritual deposit of righteousness. And we access that on the basis of faith. So we're talking about imputed righteousness when it talks about man. So just some of the principles that are brought out in chapters. 9 and 10, in terms of human responsibility, Israel failed in their pursuit of righteousness. That's chapters 9, verses 30 through 33. We saw that. And now in this passage, they failed to know this very important perfection of God. Now, I didn't expand upon it, but what we mean by the righteousness of God, you could just look at the heart of the word righteous righteousness, rightness, or perfection, or it deals with a standard. And it's not that God meets a standard. God is the standard. Everything can be measured in terms of God. I think holiness is related and very close relationship between righteousness and holiness. The distinction is that in holiness, is that God is set apart. And when we speak of righteousness, God is righteous in a sense that there's nothing else like him. He is a perfect standard. He is the ultimate in rightness and nothing approaches him apart from him giving or granting that in terms of mankind. So, God in his perfection, that's probably best exemplified by a, a righteous aspect of his His being. So he is perfectly righteous and no one, all of us fall short of that glory of righteousness. And in fact, there is none righteous, not even one. That's the Romans 3.10 passage. And uh, Israel's failure was to understand the perfection of God. And if you don't understand the perfection of God, then everything else is distorted, including man. He's going to expand upon that next. But when you speak in terms of the perfection of God, what Israel had done and what all of us tend to do is we bring God down to our level. And we think in terms of God grading on the curve or or God accepting anything less than perfection. We say, well, we can't be perfect. How could God accept us? Well, God does not accept us because he is perfectly righteous and we stand condemned. The only means by which we can gain a right standing before him is not to lower God to our level, but to, according to what God has revealed, let God do what he says that he will do and that he will bring us up to his level by declaring us righteous. And then beginning a process in us to conforming us more and more to that image. Now Israel failed, but uh, this was not just Israel. This is common every day. In fact, one of the major problems that we will face in reaching people for the Lord, I think is summarized in verse 3. And it starts with people don't understand the righteousness of God. They have lowered God to make him like us. And that's our tendency, all of us. Even as believers, we tend to lower God to to fit in to our conception of what God should be. But the Bible speaks of this perfection, this absolute separateness, this differentness from us. God is transcendent. This unapproachableness of God because we are sinners and we are utterly helpless to make any changes. We've looked at all of this and the only way of doing entering into righteousness is by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And uh, we've talked in some depth in that. And what we do, what men do, and in this context, Israel, and particularly in the first century, They not only lowered who God is in terms of his nature, but now because they've lowered the standard, now they are seeking to establish their own. In other words, in their own efforts, if I simply obey the law and even that is perverted. And if you look at when Jesus addresses the Jewish leaders, one of the main things he addresses is the way that they have fallen short in terms of even their obedience of the law. And he drives that point home in parables, in teaching, in confrontation. The fact that what they're doing is seeking to establish their own righteousness before God and have stumbled over the stumbling block that has made the provision to enter into that righteousness. So they're seeking to establish their own righteousness. And when you witness to an unbeliever, you need to just re- remember that even And I'm talking about the religious unbeliever, the one that goes to church and thinks that if I just go to church enough, if I just maybe do certain things, if I only obey the Ten Commandments, if only I can uh, do enough good works to overcome my, my weaknesses, my failures, not recognizing that it's sin and that it separates us from God. We think in some way I can do something. And uh, that's seeking our own righteousness, and it's impossible. In fact, he's going to expand upon that in verse 5. So they did not, because they're seeking their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. There it is again. The righteousness that comes from God, or the righteousness that God provides, or that, the means by which God has provided that righteousness. So they have... Stumbled over it. They've they've omitted it. They've uh, focused on their own efforts. Very common, and uh, this is why Israel is set aside because they've stumbled over their Messiah. So that's verses two and three, and beginning in verse four. Now Paul is going to summarize why that's a problem with kind of a simple verse, a simple passage. And one of the things that Israel failed was to see the purpose of the law. If you haven't noticed already, I'm using alliteration here. Past sovereign election, present national rejection, perversion in attaining righteousness, pursuit and stumbling, problems in perceiving that righteousness. I could have used another word there, but I wanted to use a P word. And then in verse 1, the prayer of Paul for Israel and then I've arranged the sentence to put perfection first, two and three, perfection of God unknown, and now the purpose of the law. So what does it mean in verse four? For Christ is the end of the law. And uh, of all of the verses, this is probably the one that's the most debated amongst the uh, commentators. And it's not totally clear in this context, but if you do a word study, on not only the word law to figure out what he's talking about in this context, but the word that's translated end, the Greek word is telos. I'll show you that in a moment. What does that word mean and what does it mean in this context, particularly in relationship to Christ? There's a little structural difference as well. The the word end there is put at the very beginning. I think it's emphasizing it. The end of the law is put at the beginning of the sentence, and remember, in the Greek language, word order is not as important as it is in, uh, say, in English. And when an author does that, he does it for different reasons. And I think in this case, it's just for emphasis. But there's actually not a verb here, so it adds a little ambiguity here. So the subject of the sentence is actually the uh, is Christ, as the, the translators translate. Christ is the end of the law. So this adds just a little confusion to some of the commentators. And as a result, they've come up with different ways of taking this idea of Christ being the end of the law. So let me real quickly look at some of that. The word end that's translated in the New American Standard, end is telos. And it has a variety of usages. Even in the New Testament, it only occurs 40 times. But from that. Most of the usages are translated with the idea of the end of something, and many of them refer to time, in other words, an end of a period of time or the end of a progress of events. Some commentators take that in this context in terms of a historical event. In other words, Christ in his coming historically brought an end to the law and i think that's true but not necessarily in this context i think there is a sense in which christ did end some aspects of the law now he didn't end the law in terms of its totality and in in terms of even its usefulness and there's another verse that we'll look up in a moment when we get there where he states overtly he didn't he didn't come to abolish the law, remember that one, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17, but to fulfill, and that might be involved in this passage here in some sense. The word is used to complete something as well, us And even in the close proximity in the book of Romans, chapter 6, 21 through 22, speaking of the outcome of the outworking of sin and the outworking of grace, 621 through 22. In fact, the New American Standard Translate tell us there as outcomes. So those are kind of the general ideas of the word itself. Now, when it comes to this passage, end of the law, some translators take it in this, you might even say this uh, temporal sense, the termination, but I think Matthew 517, the passage I just mentioned, that he did not come to abolish it. That's what Jesus says. In fact, in verse 18, every jot and tittle will remain until all of it is fulfilled. So he didn't come to end it in the sense of terminating the law. Now there's some aspects that are terminated, but the totality and the main uh, emphasis of the law is not in that sense. Now that's the way some of the commentators Translated, Very common is also this idea of fulfillment, and in a sense, this idea certainly is true, and you could use that Matthew 5.17, Christ came to fulfill it, in that uh, everything that the temple represented, in other words, the entire approach to God, you might say, the uh, presence of God, everything that the temple represented, Jesus Christ, the incarnation Christ fulfilled. That's why there's no temple anymore. That's why the temple eventually God judged, I think, the nation of Israel through the Roman Empire and destroyed the temple. All that Aaron represents, I think, the which would include all of the sacrifices and the sacrificial system, Christ fulfilled all of that on the cross. So in a sense, he fulfilled those. That's why we don't have animal sacrifices anymore. That's an aspect of the law. All of the ceremonies. Now, all of this is true. That in that sense, Christ fulfilled the law. Uh, the ceremonies commemorated certain things in the nation of Israel and, uh, were not obligated to observe the Passover, for example. In fact, Jesus is the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. So he's, he fulfills those. Now the question is, is that the sense that we have here in Romans? And I think there might be some aspects to it, but I think more precisely, I think it has this idea of the goal. In other words, everything in the law was directed to the Messiah. And one of the main things that the law was to show and one of the goals was not to give life, not to give eternal life or not to regenerate because the law cannot. In fact, we saw that concept in Romans 7. It can't give life. But it shows and it should drive us to our knees to show that no matter how hard we try, we cannot we cannot fulfill the perfect requirements of the law. Uh, Jesus pointed out this out. He says, as your heavenly father is perfect, you be perfect. That's the standard. Perfect righteousness. The law shows I can't keep it. And it shows that we have a need for God himself to provide a need for the, the Messiah. So I think it has this idea of a goal and it may have a secondary idea of fulfillment or the purpose of the law is to redirect us and to show us that we are inadequate in ourselves. We need something outside of ourselves. So it ultimately points to my Messiah. And I think that's the thrust here. And I think we have qualification here that gives us a little bit of an explanation concerning what Paul is talking about. Remember, context is very important. And I think the little phrase explains what he's talking about when he talks about Christ being the end of the law. And verse three talked about trying to establish one's own righteousness on the basis of the law and that fails but Christ is the end of that whole pursuit so if you're pursuing righteousness or maybe better stated we have to pursue the way that God has provided access to righteousness and the word for there is ace in other words toward righteousness in other words it's the end of the law as you approach it or towards it or to righteousness, you can translate it to righteousness with the idea in terms of pursuing righteousness, Christ is the end. And I think that's what the thrust is here. And the following passages I think is going to support this idea. The goal of the law is to bring us to a realization that it's in Christ that we have access to righteousness. And in the sense of when we trust in Christ, That puts an end to a law pursuit of righteousness or a pursuit on our own basis or a pursuit by doing. Christ is the end in terms of attaining or arriving to righteousness. And notice specifically, he qualifies it further to everyone who believes, showing this aspect. And in this context, what is he addressing? Why are Gentiles coming into this? It's because to everyone who believes. It includes Gentiles. And it certainly includes Jewish people. And in the first century, there were some Jewish people that believed. So Christ is being the end of the law in terms of our relationship to God, in terms of righteousness to those who believe. So I think you have to take the whole verse and not separate that. And I think if you do that, you will come up with a different conclusion. So I think it has this idea, particularly, not only in all of these other areas that Christ is fulfillment, but more specifically in verse 4, when we come to Christ, the pursuit for righteousness in terms of a standing before God has ended. Our eternal destiny is secure. We are forever secure in the work and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus Christ is the end, and he's the goal. He is the one that we direct people to, that Christ is the only way, and if a man wants to become righteous, Christ is the end. He is the means. He is the way. He is the goal. He's the purpose, and he's the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament that directed, the law directed man to Messiah. So a third failure of the nation of Israel was that they had a failure to realize the purpose of the law, the intent of the law, verse 4, and to realize that uh, Messiah was not only the fulfillment, but the end in terms of the pursuit of righteousness. Does that make sense? Any comments or questions? I've kind of dominated. I haven't allowed you to make too many comments here. Well, let's begin The next part, beginning in verse 5, and as you can already tell, we're not going to complete the outline sheet, so we'll just uh, pick up where we leave off on the outline sheet. I'll probably send the same one out next week. So beginning in verse 5 through 13, I think now he's going to expand this idea that he presented in verse 4. That's why I've spent this much time on it. I think it's going to be expanded in basically the rest of chapter 10. So now he's going to go back to the problem in accessing righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, but Israel has missed it. So he's going to expand that idea. And I've broken it down, first of all, 5 through 8. The emphasis of that is the availability of this righteousness. God has made it available And he's going to contrast it, first of all, in verse 5, with this pursuit, which is a problem, this pursuit of righteousness via the law. That's verse 5. So he's going to go to Moses and tell us what Moses requires or what Moses spells out in terms of reaching righteousness for Moses' writes that the man who practices, now he's talking about living here. He's talking about the one that wants to live a life who practices the righteousness of the law, basically, or for Moses writes, that the man who practices the righteousness, and then he's qualifying it, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. So let's take a look at this passage because he is quoting from a passage in Leviticus. And as we've looked at the other passages, in order to understand what Paul is saying, remember Paul is writing to a Jewish first century audience. Now there's Gentiles there as well. But they were familiar with the Old Testament. They would have certainly been familiar with Leviticus. So Paul just gives us enough to remind us of Leviticus 18. And he takes part of verse 5. So we need to look at that context. The context of the whole book of Leviticus is basically Mount Sinai and the Mosaic law, the law at Sinai. Now, historically, think in terms of, and I'm saying this to kind of develop the context here. Historically, what is the historical event that we would say is Israel's salvation. What's the event that is more than the picture, but an actual deliverance that is Israel's essentially salvation, you might say? The Exodus, the The, Passover. Well, the The Passover Passover specifically, but yes, the Exodus and specifically believing the Passover And the blood on the doorposts, the shed blood in place of them, in other words, a substitute, substitutionary death, that is their salvation experience. What does Sinai represent? And what does the law represent? Covenant. Covenant, but in terms of Israel's what? Their experience in the land. Oh, Yeah, experience in the land. Now... The salvation concept is the Exodus. The Mount Sinai experience is how do I maintain a relationship with God? How how do I walk? How do I live? How do I enter into God's blessing? What is the lifestyle associated with that? So 18 is just one little small part of the overall law. That would include uh, all of the other aspects of the Mosaic Law and the Covenant. The Covenant regulated the nation, and it particularly regulated the nation when they entered the land. So how do you live in the land, and how do you access blessing? So don't confuse the law, and this is part of what Christians often do, is confuse the law and the obeying of the law as the means of righteousness. Now, Israel stumbled over that, and the unbeliever stumbles over that today. So that's the thrust of uh, 18. In fact, would somebody look that one up? I should have had you look it up, Leviticus 18, and so that I don't dominate this whole thing. Would somebody care to read uh, the first couple of verses there real quickly before we get to verse 5? 18 thoughts. Oh. Go ahead. So so you. uh, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Verse six, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. Okay, that's verse five and six. Would somebody read one and two? Who, who started off there? Go ahead and read one and two first. This, okay. is, to, this is to give you the context.
1: The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord, your God. Keep my decrees and laws. For the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord.
0: Great. Okay, notice a couple of things in those early chapters. What is Moses reminding? Notice it's addressed to the children of Israel. He's reminding them of who he is. I am the Lord God because everything is based on who God is. I am the Lord your God. I am the one that performed the miracles. I'm the one of the Exodus. He reminds them. But what is the thrust of verse 3? Living, preparing the nation of Israel to live in the land. You shall not do what they did in Egypt. In other words, they had a different lifestyle. They had a different worldview. Don't live in Egypt. You are out of Egypt. I'm doing something different in you. You're entering another land that is just as corrupt, just as depraved as the Egyptians. You're entering even a more depraved culture, the Canaanites. Don't live like them. So he's talking about living in the land. And then verse 5, that's where Paul pulls out, which is based on the law. You shall live by that righteousness. He's alluding, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which by a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. In other words, you have a different standard. You have a different covenant, a different pattern. That's living by the law. And it was extremely detailed how you pleased God in terms of a lifestyle, in, in terms of receiving God's blessing. But you also know, and if you read on, and other passages, and he's gonna, he's gonna introduce some of those other passages later on, that, uh, you have passages like what James talks about. In order to please God, you, perfection is required. You violate one aspect of the law, and you violated it all. So you stand condemned, and you're, you're basically out of fellowship with God. But that's what he's getting at. So he's talking about if you want to live in that way, then be prepared to live by that standard. And that standard is a standard of perfection. And what he's driving at here, if you want to establish your own righteousness, and if you want to do it on the basis of law, you're going to lose. It's a losing battle. And then he's going to contrast that with the righteousness by faith. And this is probably a good place to stop. And let me just introduce it and then we'll save the contrast. The The road that only leads to frustration and failure, a pursuit of righteousness by law. There's another way. There's another alternative and he's going to expand upon that and the idea that it's accessible. It's near you. It's it's not far off. It's right in your mouth. It's something that uh, has been revealed to you, the righteousness by faith. So in verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. In other words, the right standing before God that begins with an initial faith, with an initial a trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ that also leads to a lifestyle and a walk. So this righteousness that is based on faith speaks as follows. And now he's going to go to another passage that uh, I want to give you a little bit more of an expansion next time. In fact, if you want to prepare... Read Deuteronomy 28 through 30 for next time, because he's he's pulling this passage out. And commentators, uh, most of them say he's probably not quoting it, but he's using the terminology that comes from there. And these may be more of an illusion than an exact quote, because he changes the wording a little bit, and he's applying it to the first century, actually, applying it to Christ. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And this comes out of Deuteronomy 30. But to get kind of an introduction to that, and I'm going to give you kind of a background on that next time. Deuteronomy 28 and also verse 30. And he takes these words, do not say in your heart. Notice the heart because he's going to expand upon that. Who will ascend into heaven? Then verse 7 is going to expand upon that in terms of descending into the, the abyss. Uh, we'll talk about that next time. It'll take too long to go into too much detail here. Any comments before we close here? Any questions? Ray, this is Terry. I have one comment. Um, It just seems to me today, even Christians, they look at justification by faith and they realize that. But it's really easy to look at sanctification by following the law. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we, we looked at that problem in Romans chapter 7. Walking by faith is analogous to initial trusting the finished work of Christ. That's faith. Yeah, good comment. Any other comments, questions? Well,
1: I think... It's, it's kind of mind boggling and mind blowing too because everything else in the world that people put their faith in or their belief in, it is faith based and you have to do something to try to gain something. And this is the only, the only answer that is not in any way dependent on us. It's a hundred percent Christ. So I just think that the fact that this is so unique from everything else, you know, it's we, we get it in our culture so much that, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that. Um, and so then we we start applying it to our Christian walk, but that's not right as we're, you know, learning is we, we, we can't do that. That's a sin to think that we can um, earn it like everything else in this world tells us that, that we have to do. So, um, you know, that's that's just the uniqueness of of uh following Christ and it sure takes a weight off, that's for sure. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. and I just I, I hope that others um I, I really do hope that there's a revival through everything that's going on. I, I really, really hope that people start really digging deep and, you know, searching their hearts. So and, and I really hope that God is, you know, softening um softening people's hearts too and giving us opportunities to share
0: as well. So Yeah, I've had quite a few opportunities and I've heard from some of you you've had opportunities as well. Yeah, that's what we need to emphasize. Keep these two concepts in mind though, in sharing, the human heart wants to do something. The human tendency is to to make God after our image and starts with creating a God that has lowered his standards such that we can meet them. And then we try to approach him on our own terms of coming up with a list of things that we do or don't do or whatever. So the human tendency is to make God after our image rather than letting the scriptures teach us that he is absolutely perfection. He's perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly separate, and there's no way that we can attain that, so we have to come by the means that he has provided. Terry, you want to close for us, please? Sure. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for just what you did on the cross, Lord, and your total provision of righteousness. And Lord, we just pray that we can trust you for Everything and to realize who we are and that you are totally perfect and that our only approach to you is through the blood of Jesus Christ and we just help us to trust you and live that out every day in Jesus' name every day Amen Amen Any final goodbyes See you later See you next week Trey See you guys Thanks Trey Bye Thank God God. Thanks Trey Bye everyone Other
1: Binkies
0: Good to see you all.